Morning, everybody. Morning. Great to see you. Oh, youth, yeah. We'll let the youth go. Yeah, uh, th- thanks, Anna. Um, youth, you are blessed. Have a wonderful time. Do go uh, and uh, head towards your groups. And um, while they're doing that, oh, fantastic. Well done, guys. Brilliant. We've got the... Uh, We've got it all going. So this morning we are talking about the love of Jesus. I hear you thinking, what's new there? They always talk about the love of Jesus in that church. Um, That's no big deal. Um, Maybe you think that's all we ever talk about. Um, But today is a little bit different. It's the last in our current series, Simply Jesus. You see, we've been looking at the different aspects of Jesus' character um, as we read in the gospel accounts of his life, which is where we've got to in our year of biblical literacy. Um, we've talked about Jesus the teacher. We've talked about Jesus the healer and the saviour. Last week, Joe spoke about how Jesus is a revealer, how Jesus came to show us what God is like. And today we are talking about Jesus the lover. Now, the lover, that sounds a bit wrong, doesn't it? Like, it kind of makes me think of Latino lover, and that's just the wrong image completely. Um, but it kind of fitted with the sort of thing. So we're talking about Jesus and how he loves us and what it is that the love of Jesus looks like. And if you have a Bible, I would love you to turn to John chapter 8. And if you have your Bible on the phone or something, then turn to that because that is our key um, story, our key text for this morning. We're going to read this story from John chapter 8 and verse 2 to 11. Um, does that work now? Chat, you may have to push this on for me because I can't get that working at the minute, chaps, unless I'm missing something here. Um, John chapter 8, verses 2 to 11. Let me read the story uh, to us together. It says, at dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, this is Jesus, where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. And the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. And Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. I wonder how you define what love is. I'd love you to turn to the person next to you and just in 20 seconds, give them your quickest, fastest, off-the-cuff definition of what it is that love means. What's love? What does that mean? How do you define it? Just tell the person next to you. So my definition in the, I looked a quick one up on Google and it said it's an intense feeling of deep affection or a great interest in something or a great pleasure in something. I bet you if I asked everyone here today to define love, there would be a variety of opinions and definitions. And I also bet that if I asked you all today, we certainly will all have had different experiences with love. 
And some of us may have really wonderful experiences with love, and some of us maybe have extremely disappointing experiences with love. You see, actually, we're not actually looking for an academic definition of love. As people, we're far more interested in what it feels like and what an experience of love is. And this idea, can you click it on for me, was encapsulated in a power ballad by the hit song, by the, by the rock band Foreigner back in 1984. Those, I, I bet some of you had that hairstyle or aspired to it, didn't you? Um, and and this, this song, I want to know what love is. And I want, who can actually remember this song? Yeah, a fair few of us. Yeah. And I want you to show me. I want to feel what love is. I know you can show me. You want me to sing it? No, I don't think you want that. You know, universal, universal pop hits like that happen for a reason, and it's usually because they're encapsulating and expressing something which just um, resonates with many, many people. That feeling, I want to know what love is. Um, there's an author and a blogger and a TED speaker called Hannah Brencher. Click on, please, for me. And she wrote a very honest blog about love, and it's quite long, it's quite a long quote, it goes over three slides, but it really captures something and I'd love to read it to you. It says, I'm just, she says, I'm just going to take off my own mask and finally admit it. I've worshipped the wrong definition of love for far too long. There was a strange kind of comfort in worshipping my own definition of love. It meant I could ne- it could never hurt me, control me, surprise me or wreck me. My own definition of love let me be in charge of urging, controlling, surprising and wrecking myself first. Love, to me, she says, was this script's on repeat. Win people, be worthwhile, be the one that people want to love, do what it takes to please them. Next slide. And if someone came to me and said, listen, we need to borrow your definition of love, we want to print it in all the dictionaries, then I would really need to pity the the world that would have to try and live inside that definition. Because love to me was blue eyes that start looking in my direction. Love to me was begging to my own strength to try and get it all together and get it all right. Love to me was hearing scriptures like love your neighbor as yourself and laughing as I whispered, that's so funny. I barely even like myself. Next slide. Love was promises we couldn't keep. Love was disappointments. Love was walls built to keep me safe. Moats around castles. It was writing notes to ghosts. It was hinging my worth on being chosen. Love is all I ever wanted. And the one thing I still feel too insecure to admit that I don't want it, I need it. And I reckon probably most of us can relate to some part of that quote or other, because for many of us, at one time or another in our lives, our ideas, our expectations, and our experiences of love have left us disappointed, empty, self-protective, on guard, or even fearful. You know, back to that song, next, next slide, I want to know what love is. The verses are full of questions. The pre-chorus says, in my life, there's been heartache and pain. I don't know if I can face it again. I can't stop now. I've traveled this far. No, I won't sing it for you. To change this lonely life. It's very real. It's very real. It's very real. But love is supposed to be more than just this feeling of disappointment. Love is supposed to make us feel treasured. It's supposed to make us feel like we're special, that we're chosen, that we're adored. But the truth is that very few of us would say that we grew up completely with that deep sense of knowing I'm wanted, I'm adored, I'm special, I'm chosen, I'm treasured. And if you did grow up knowing that, well, that's wonderful and really worth celebrating and being very thankful for. But honestly, I think most of us probably didn't, one way or another. And I found this slide on the internet. Next one, please. And it just says this, it's so exhausting maintaining this wall around my heart. And many of us can relate to a sense of being unwanted and unloved and unwelcomed and inadequate 
more than we can relate to a feeling of being adored and treasured. And that separation that we experience goes right back to Genesis, right back to the Garden of Eden, right back to Adam and Eve, who are experiencing initially this beautiful connectedness and unity and unconditional love, and then sin comes in and changes everything. And now separation becomes the new normal. Separation from God, separation from each other, separation from ourselves, from within ourselves. We don't even have to look far to, we don't have to look far to realize that there's something about the way our world experiences love that's so broken, so messed up. And instead of feeling loved and accepted, the normal is for most people to feel suspicious of love and resistant to love, which in turn will make us suspicious to and resistant of God. It'll make us hide behind masks and walls. It'll make us put things up to protect ourselves to avoid any kind of real vulnerability. How many of us in the true, empty, dark moments of our soul find that we're not convinced that we can think that anybody would really want to love us or want us? And in a really warped kind of way, we actually end up feeling more comfortable feeling unloved than we do feeling loved. Do you get me? And with that separation comes pain and loneliness and a sense of lostness that we find more and more familiar. And that's the place where Jesus steps in and offers to meet us. You see, he steps into separation. He steps into loneliness. He steps into pain. And he does it by his own choice. With Jesus, love looks like a person that speaks in our despair, that comes to us in the midst of all this rubbish and is present in our feelings and circumstances. And what's really, really incredible is that he does all of this and he did all of this before we had anything to offer him. Before we even acknowledged him, before, certainly before we responded to him and before we wanted him, he chooses to step into our experience. Next slide, please. Romans 5 says, Jesus, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The message version of that is, but God put his love on the line for us by offering his son in sacrificial death while we were of no use whatsoever to him. And this is a really important biblical truth because some of us think that God loves us because of the things that we do for him. And nothing could be further from the truth. That if we just work a little bit better, if we just work a bit harder, if we try a bit better, we can earn enough love from God to make us feel a little bit better and a bit loved about ourselves. And yet this verse is saying that he came to us before we could do anything for him, before we even acknowledged him. Because real love, true love, is attracted to broken things. You see, our culture loves new things, don't we? I don't know if I, I was out being chaplain the other day and I was in some of the shops and they're starting to get ready for Christmas. I was in the body shop and it's an amazing shop, colour-wise. And you know, I've learned as a chaplain when I go and speak to the shopkeepers, I say, how's it going? Usually what I've learned is you have to notice what they've done in the shop and how they've set it up nicely. And I go, oh, this is looking lovely. And that's the way that, you know, they get their affirmation and love. Anyway, we love shiny things. We love shops that smell good. You know, some people I know in my family love to spend lots of time in those kinds of places. And just, but, but we love things that are pretty and shiny and new and smell great. We love lovely things and new things, but God loves unlovely things. And his love is attracted to broken things and broken people. And sometimes that's hard for us to get our head around. But that's who Jesus is. He steps into our separation. He says, I want you and I want all of your brokenness and all of your sin 
and I'm not repulsed by it, and I'm not put off by it. I'm not deterred by any of it. You see, he is a restorer. We think we've got to scrub up and get shiny to come to church. We've got to put our best face on and look pretty good. Look like we've got it all together. And he says, I want to meet you in your brokenness and in your shame and in the things that you're frankly really embarrassed about. You know, our humiliation and our sin and our mess doesn't put Jesus off. His love stays. He remains in the awkward and difficult places. He doesn't run away. And despite the risk, the very real risk of possible rejection by us, he chooses to stay. His love is vulnerable and it's real. Next slide, please. This is a picture that I have on my desk. It's of Joe many years ago um, on a particular day in 12th of March, 1993, um, in St. James's Park in London. That's a special day for us because it's the day that we um, sort of started to go out together. Um, I know, I know. Amazing, isn't it? And what you're thinking is, um, yeah, how did I manage to um, bat so high above my average? Um, <laughs> before that day, before that day, we had been friends. We've been friends for quite a while, and then we've been good friends for maybe about a year or so. And then there came a point in our relationship where we had to have that conversation. You know what I'm talking about? You know, the one where one of us had to say, I really like you, and it's more than just a friend. And that's a risky conversation to have, isn't it? Because what if you're the person who puts it out there, and the answer that comes back is, no. No. And at that time, to be honest, I was super keen. And Joe, it's fair to say, was a little, a little more hesitant. Um, and so we agreed to spend some more time together and, and see what happened. And I was hopeful, and I was expectant, and I was on my best behavior. And <laughs> as far as I could tell, as far as I could tell, it wasn't, but it wasn't a done deal from her side. She assured me it wasn't particularly just about me. Well, that's what she said anyway, that she wasn't sure she needed a relationship with anybody at the time. But she needed some time to think about it and process it and pray. And I respected that, and I gave her the space to do that. And then there came this day, one day, when Joe actually turned around and said, I don't think it was reluctantly, was it? No. She actually said, yes, yes, it's a yes from me. And obviously, you know, she was won round by my incredible charm, my astonishing good looks, and my gigantic future earning potential. But I also know, because she's told me, that it was my willingness to wait and give her some space that was a factor in that decision. You see, I could have played it really cool. I could have said, oh, fine, no worries. You don't want to go out with me? That's fine. I'm okay with that. I didn't really mean it anyway. Plenty more fish in the sea, you know, something like, something trite like that. But I loved her, so I decided to wait. And in that, I had to make myself a little bit vulnerable. I'm not, I'm not holding myself up as the shining example of vulnerability here. But what if she'd still said no? What if she'd got to know me better and then she'd said no? What if she'd seen the full extent of my wardrobe at the time or my music collection? I put myself out there and I could have been burned. Love is risky, right? Love is risky. And being the one in any relationship, no matter the nature of that relationship, being the first one to make the first move is an incredibly brave and vulnerable thing to do. That's next slide, please. And, and yet, that's who Jesus is. He's the first one to put himself out there and say, he wants you and he wants me. Not in a creepy or aggressive way, but in a kind, consistent, remaining and vulnerable way. He says, this is who I am. And I love you even in your brokenness and even in your bad choices and even in the relationships that you keep failing and even in the striving, I still love you. And honestly, we all want that, don't we? We crave the kind of experience where somebody wants us even though we might want to reject them. Where someone is consistent and present and we are treasured. 
But there's a flip side to that because if and when that happens, I reckon that a part of us also starts to feel a little bit suspicious and maybe a little bit resistant and say, is this, is this really right? Is this really for me? Is that love that Jesus says, is it really, for, it's probably for everyone else, but it's, it can't be for me as well. And we ask ourselves the question, could God actually really just love me? Just because. Have you ever asked that question? And the answer is yes. His love is vulnerable. He is the first one to say, I love you. He took a risk to step into our world and he risked rejection from us and he came before we even acknowledged him. He risks us turning our back on him and he still says he loves us. Next slide, please. Let's look at this story in John 8. So there's this woman, and there's a lot going on in this story, and we haven't got time to go into all the levels that are going on here, but we do know that there's a woman who has been caught in the act of adultery, and that means sleeping with somebody else who wasn't her husband. And in Jewish law, the requirement to deal with that would be that both the man and the woman were brought in front of everybody and brought to book. But in this example, there's no sign of the man, and there's no sign of any witnesses either. This is not what you would describe as as fair justice. This is, it actually feels more like a, a show trial. And, that, and it actually says in verse 6, doesn't it, that that's what was going on, that this was a trap or a test for Jesus. The religious leaders didn't really care about the woman. She's just a pawn in the game, just part of the show. It didn't really matter about her because it's not really about the law. It's not about her. It's, it's about tra- Jesus and trapping him and catching him out. Because if Jesus had said, oh yeah, let her go, then they would have found him guilty for not upholding the law of Moses. But if Jesus had said, oh yeah, no, judge her, stone her, put her to death, he would have been found guilty in the hands of the Romans for encouraging the death sentence. So it was like a trap. So we have Jesus supposedly in this dilemma. But even more importantly, we have a woman here without any dignity who is humiliated and paraded in front of all these men. And although she's dressed in these pictures, she probably wasn't dressed very much, I doubt it. We can feel the weight of this accusation. We can feel the shame. We can feel that this is probably the most humiliating and the most shameful moment of her life. And it's all played out in public before this angry mob. And the stones that they want to throw aren't just the way that they want to physically kill her. These stones represent the shame and the condemnation and the weight of pressure that she was under in this moment. And we don't know what Jesus wrote on the ground. There are lots of theories that you can Google. Nobody really knows. But we know that whatever he did write and his phrase afterwards silenced her accusers. But unlike all of the crowd and all of the accusers, Jesus is only interested in the woman. And he's not interested in her sin and he's not here to condemn her. But in the middle of her shame and humiliation, what Jesus does, next slide, is care for her. You see, God always relates to us from a place of love. Let me say that again. God always relates to us from a place of love. And that was Jesus' default position. He could have condemned her. He could have judged her. He could have humiliated her. But he didn't. He related to her out of love. And often we think that God relates to us from a place of judgment or condemnation or anger. That what we've got to do is work hard to make him love us. And work hard to make him want us. And that's just a complete lie. Jesus relates to you and he relates to me from a place of love foremost and first and foremost. That's his default. And there's nothing we could do to change that. There's a major truth here. And I want you to remember this next sentence if there's nothing else that you remember from this morning. Next slide, please. And it's this. 
You are the most loved now that you will ever be. I am the most loved now that I will ever be. We could not be loved any more than we are now. We have it all right now in this moment. And in our most humiliating, shameful, sinful moments, we have all of God's love. And in the moments that we don't want anyone else to even know about, we have all of God's love. We are the most loved that we will ever be. When we've had too much to drink, when we've made a fool of ourselves, when we've looked at pornography, when we've shouted at our kids or our friends or our spouse, when we've totally lost the plot, when we've cheated, when we've done something that we would just don't even want to go back there and think about or talk about, we are the most loved, the most loved now that we will ever be. And that's the truth of what it says in the Bible. But we are hardwired to think that we're condemned and we're separated, don't, aren't we? We're hardwired not to believe this. It seems like that sometimes. But today, you know, I really believe that when we come to ministry time in a few minutes, we're just going to try and open our hearts to God. But I really believe that the Holy Spirit wants to realign this truth for us today. That he wants to do something to help us understand that we are loved. And we are loved. And we are loved. And we are loved, regardless of any behavior, anything we've done. And as I said, if those stones illustrate all the accusations that she'd failed and all the reasons that she should be punished, then by the end of the story, they have no more power over her. And this chapter has a lovely symbolism because it starts here with this angry mob trying to stone the woman. And it ends at the end of John chapter 8 with another angry mob trying to stone Jesus himself. And isn't that a beautiful picture of the gospel? We deserve all the stones and all the condemnation, all the judgment and all that. And yet Jesus steps in and takes our place and takes it for us. To the point where those stones and those lies and those accusations are powerless in our lives. You see, we operate within a spiritual battle where our enemy is intent on destroying us. He would love to stone us. He would love to call us out by our sin. But God operates in truth and calls us beloved. The devil will remind us of our lowest moments of our weakest choices, and he'll try and make us define ourselves by those mistakes and by our worst shame. And Jesus says, no, I call you by a new name. You are loved. It's so amazing the way he treats this woman, the love that he shows her. And after the crowd has slowly removed themselves from the scene and it's just Jesus and her left alone, he says, no one else has condemned you, so I'm not condemning you. Go and leave your life of sin. And he doesn't say, it's not, it doesn't mean go and leave your life of sin because next time I'm not going to be here to rescue you. He's not saying that. And he's not saying, go and leave your life of sin. Yeah, whatever, big deal. No, no problem. It's fine. He's saying, I think what he's actually saying is this. Go and leave your life of sin because you are not who you think you are. And I am calling you, Jesus says, into a new identity, a kingdom that's different. You are not defined by what you do or what you've done. You are not judged or condemned by your mistakes. I'm calling you by a new name because this is how I see you. Now live up to it. Next slide, I saw this lovely cartoon by a fantastic artist called Charlie Mackesy. You have been loved, you are loved, and you always will be loved. Jesus doesn't relate to us by the stuff we've done or the things that we think we are. He relates to us how he sees us, unique, beloved, and chosen, and treasured. We might think that if someone else is chosen, then I can't be chosen too. If someone else is chosen, they're the special one, and I miss out. And yet God's 
Choosing isn't like that. Maybe you remember being chosen for sports teams at school. I was always the last one to be chosen at school. And, you know, you're hoping to be picked and you're hoping to be chosen first. And then you realize that when you haven't been chosen, that means that you are rejected and not as good as other people. I don't know if that was your experience, but it was mine. But being chosen in God's kingdom is completely different. Next slide, please. Here's another lovely cartoon by the same author. What's the biggest waste of time is comparing yourself. You see, in our family, we have this kind of friendly banter around my children about who is the favorite child. And uh, we will, has this, has it, does it ever happen in anyone else's family? And does anybody else have teenagers who reprogram your phones for you so that their name in your phone comes up with something different? You see, we will praise one of our kids for you know, doing something really well, and they will say, oh, just goes to show that I am <clears throat> hashtag favorite child, okay? And they'll say it within the earshot of uh, one of the others. In fact, when he was younger, and I've checked this, and I have permission to use this story, Zach got hold of his mum's phone one day and reprogrammed his entry, so it did say, not just simply Zach, but Zach, the most favourite child in the world ever. <laughs> in fact, the other week, I'd forgotten this, but the, yeah, thank you. He, he asked me to point out that he doesn't really think that, it's just a bit banter, but, you know, I don't know. Um, I, I was, you know, I have a, an Apple phone and there's this thing, Siri, and I was driving home uh, about six months ago and I said, Siri, send a message to Zach Hemming. And Siri came back and said, I can't find anyone called Zach Hemming in your phone. And it's because I hadn't realised that in my phone he's programmed himself as Zach the one and only. <laughs> so now, whenever I have to ask Siri to send Zach a, a message because I'm driving, I'm like, Siri, send a text message to Zach the one and only. Of course, my, lo- my children love to banter around this, and they know that we don't have favourites. We, we choose them all. And we made sure that they knew that growing up. Henry Nguyen, in this uh, next, next slide, please, in The Life of the Beloved, says this, when love chooses, it chooses with perfect sensitivity for the unique beauty of the chosen one. And it chooses, chooses without making anyone else feel excluded. To be chosen by God does not mean that others are rejected. The world we grow up in, everything is compared. We're compared to everyone, to our colleagues and our classmates and our peers and our friends, but God doesn't love us out of that kind of comparison. He sees our uniqueness and he chooses us and he wants us. And he says we're special. Well, next slide, please. And Neon says this has implications for us because from the moment we claim the truth of being the beloved, we're faced with the call to become who we are. So that's who he says we are, and now our challenge is to become that. And we live in this tension, don't we, between whether who the world says we are and who God says we are. You know, the world says you are not really wanted or loved. There's nothing special about you. God says you are beloved. You are loved just as you are. It can be easy for us to take that identity on. And there's a, there's a challenge in there, isn't there? It challenges our insecurity. You know, the words of our friends and family and colleagues and those around us sometimes seem very real in our world. And the words of God, you are beloved, sometimes seem a little bit distant, don't they? We can hear something on a Sunday or we can read it in our Bible and say, oh yeah, that's the truth. I'm beloved, I'm loved. We go go home from church on Sunday and back into the world on Monday and we don't really feel that because we still hear the words of our colleagues and our friends, and we still have this void inside that's hungry for love. And maybe we don't actually literally go around singing, I want to know what love. We don't, there you are, I sang it for you. We, we don't literally go around singing it, but deep down inside of us, something is driving at us because we're hungry to be chosen and hungry to be wanted. And in this space between 
God's radical truth about who he says we are and our everyday life, there's a gap. And so sometimes we try and fill that gap with other things. Put the next slide on, please. We try and pursue other ways to feel love. We take matters back into our own hands, like Eve did in the garden. We start to wonder whether God's love that we've heard about on Sunday and read about in the Bible really is true and trustworthy. And we wonder about if there's a way that we can shortcut that process of finding intimacy and feeling loved. And there are two things that we do, patterns of behavior that we develop over years. Next slide, please. And one of them is performance. You know, some of us are on the performance treadmill. We work really hard to stand out, to make a difference. Maybe you're the only one in your world and you had to work hard to just get noticed or get known. Like the candidates on The Apprentice, for example. They're so desperate for approval. That's what makes it good telly, isn't it? You know? They're wanting, we're, we're maybe like that, we're wanting to please our parents or our peers or our overseers or our trustees or whoever it is that we want to, trying to please. We're working to make good grades in school or uni and we're scoring well on our targets at work and we post these incredible lives on social media that look beautiful and perfect and everyone wants to be like us and that makes us feel good and we're holding down a challenging career and we're volunteering at church and we're killing ourselves to hide our flaws. And it's actually all about image and everything's about saving face and not getting too real, not admitting our weaknesses. You know, I don't need your help. I've got this. I've got this is like our mantra. I can do this. I've got this. I can perform. And when we do that, it gets, it fills that gap. It feeds the love deficit inside us. You know, we'll do something really well and somebody will go, wow, you're amazing. Well done. Fantastic. You're incredible. And we think, thank God that's filled the black hole for another few days. You know, if I perform, people will love me and I'm the good one and I'm the capable one and I'm the spiritual one. And we can build our whole personality around receiving that approval. Like a dancing monkey in a circus, always working, always performing, but, but ultimately not satisfying and still aching. So next slide, please. Well, the other way that some of us find the love is, is through pleasure. And some of us fill that love space through whatever dulls the senses or whatever dulls the emptiness, whether it's substances or sex or relationships or quick flings or pornography or drinking or highs or leading double lives or looking for a thrill or going to a party or just watching an endless box set, anything to numb the pain. We're supposedly in control and yet we're using and abusing our bodies and other people's bodies as well to make us feel better, to make us feel that we're okay and that we're loved. Maybe we get into... Maybe we're just into flirting or get into casual relationships, not because we love that person, because we just want to feel wanted and needed. And that feels this cycle of disappointment inside of us. Many of us just don't have much idea of how to do loves and love. And so after several attempts at relationships that don't work out, we start to think, well, hang on a minute, it must be about me. There must be something wrong with me. And then that sort of sends us in on a, on a, on a, a different journey of self-hatred and self-harm and suicide and all those stones like that woman in the story was facing all those big rocks it feels like they're coming against us and they're pounding our lives and deep down when we admit it we just don't feel that we're loved or we don't believe that we're loved and we don't believe that we can ever do any enough ever do enough to be loved and Jesus steps into all of that stuff and he says I still want you and I still love you I see it all nothing's hidden I'm not repulsed. I'm just here. And this morning I feel like God wants to say to us in the room that Jesus wants to say, I'm right here and I'm not leaving. 
and all our efforts to be that dancing monkey in the circus, all that efforts to get love and approval, all those efforts to dull the pain, Jesus says, I still want you and I still love you. The Bible is very clear about how much God feels about us. Just put the next slide on for me. He says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. I delight in mercy and I delight in you, the Lord says. And one last quote from Henry Nguyen. He says, as long as being, as long as being the beloved is little more than a beautiful thought or a lofty idea that hangs about my head and keep, to keep me from becoming depressed, well, then nothing really changes. What is required is to become the beloved in the common places of my daily existence and bit by bit to close the gap that exists between what I know myself to be and the countless specific realities of everyday life. Becoming the beloved, Nuon says, is pulling the truth revealed to me from above down into the ordinariness of what I am, in fact, thinking of and talking about and doing from hour to hour. What he's saying here is that we can talk about this in church and it's an incredible idea and it sounds really great and we can go away from here and go, yes, Lord, I'm up for that. You call me the beloved, woohoo. But it doesn't change anything until we can pull it down into the ordinary, everyday parts of our lives. When we're waking up in the morning, when we're having our first coffee, when we're checking our email, when we're on social media, when we're talking to our family, when we're at work, when we're making the tea or doing the washing up, all these ordinary, mundane places of our lives, that's where the beloved has to enter in and redefine us. This is hard work because there are lots of places in our lives where we don't feel very beloved and where we don't feel very wanted. Sometimes they're places of sin and shame. Sometimes they're places of lostness. And there's a challenge that we face today. You see, we can't just tweak a few performance behaviours and tweak the ways in which we see, seek pleasure. It's not going to work just to make a little change. We have to totally give them up. This is life transformation, a brand new identity that God, that Jesus is calling us into today. Let's stop and think about that for a moment. Where is it that you or I are attempting to tweak a bit of behaviour? Oh, I'll just do that a bit better. I'll just be a bit more morally better there. I'll just be a bit more good here. You see, I believe that Jesus wants to exchange all of that this morning for something that he's offering, which is brand new and that will completely change our lives. He's calling us to swap our little tweaks in behavior for a genuine encounter of his love. And I believe this morning that Jesus wants us to respond very specifically because there is an exchange that needs to happen here and it's very real and it needs to be very intentional. And some of us have been disappointed by love and left dissatisfied and empty. However we define that. And Jesus says, whatever your experience has been with love, I want to meet you this morning. And some of us are thinking, how do I become the beloved? What do I have to do? Just give me the bullet points. You know, tell me what I have to achieve. And there are no bullet points because it's just simply an encounter with Jesus and an ongoing encounter with Jesus it's a life of intimacy and nurture that we nurture that begins in moments like this when we respond to Jesus and continues when we pull it into our everyday moment of every life last slide for me this morning is another version of that cartoon I showed you <laughs> this guy Charlie Mackesy is a pretty well-known artist and he's got an amazing book that's out for Christmas 
and it's doing fantastically in the bestsellers. He's all over the media at the minute. And he's drawing these cartoons which I can see God in um, and which many, many other people are relating to and can see, um, even if you're not a believer, you can see emotional health and all sorts in them. And I just love this. You can follow him on Instagram if you want to find out more about him. But this morning, some of us, we may be really disappointed and we can really relate to the idea of putting up a drawbridge or putting a moat around ourselves or building a high wall and saying, I've been there and I'm not going there again. I'm not letting my guard down again. And we've built our walls so high that not even Jesus can get in to wrap his arms around us. We're saying, I can't be disappointed again. I can't be left feeling empty. Some of us are driven to perform. like We're just hardwired and we've been that way since we were kids. We're just keeping working to show everybody that we are worthy. Look at me, I can do this. I'm capable. Approve of me. And God wants to break that this morning off our lives. It's just such an exhausting place to be, isn't it? And some of us are here today and we've been seeking pleasure and we have found that and we feel the most intense shame about it. This, for this lady in the story, this was her most humiliating and shameful place. And Jesus entered right in and he said, I don't condemn you. He has so much love available for her in that moment. And maybe some of us are here this morning with a heavy layer of guilt. Maybe it's sexual sin. Maybe it's shame. Whatever you are bringing this morning, Jesus says, I don't condemn you. I don't, I don't condemn you. I love you. I don't reject you. I want you. So if you'd like to encounter his love fresh today, he's here. Why don't you guys who go in the worship team, why don't you come back? And why don't the rest of us stand?